back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. This is where I get to ask smart people dumb questions. And because it's audio only, you can't see them roll their eyes when I do. There's really only one story dominating our lives here in South Africa. It's energy, or should I say electricity, which I think, Chris, uh, uh, is, is, is mainly what we convert energy into here in South Africa. There's been a flurry of activity over the past few days that would leave you wondering what on earth is going on unless you're really paying attention. First, the National Energy Crisis Committee meets, and then ESCOM has a, a, a two-headed, three-headed press conference over the weekend. Both the outgoing CEO, Andre de Rota, and the new chairman, and Paul McQuana, speaking at that, somewhat contradicting each other. Um, in between all of this, the media has been full of electricity, or the lack of it. The Energy Minister, Gwede Mantasha, has been vocal um, about his part, or the absence of his part, uh, in the disaster we are facing. Unfortunately, I have the best possible person with me today to make sense of this all. Chris Yelland is an expert energy analyst. I'm not going to call him an energy expert. Um, a trusted and admired journalist, very well known, I suspect, to anyone who might listen to this podcast. And Chris, uh, thanks for joining us. That was quite the weekend, wasn't it? Was it all noise, or do we have this morning, Monday, um, a new sense of purpose about fixing load shedding, do you think? Yeah, um, I don't think there's anything really new on the horizon. Um, a lot of what has been said over the weekend is, is not really new, um, but uh, d definitely there appears to be a very significant pressure on everybody concerned up to the president, and I can understand why, because this kind of load jetting has serious political consequences as we lead up to the elections next year. Uh, and so we see a lot of politicking taking place, a lot of populist statements taking place. And um, I think we can uh, expect a lot more in the coming uh, weeks and months. Uh, you know, we're leading up to the State of the Nation address, and I think that's adding to the stress and pressure of the president. Thereafter, the budget uh, address, and uh, yeah, so all in all, I think it's a, a period of some tension, and uh, the tension is likely to increase as the election approaches. When you say when you say nothing new, did you? I got a sense listening to particularly the ESCOM press conference where both um, Andre de Rota and, uh, and Paul McQuana spoke of. Um, I, seem to be much more detail in it. They seem to be more decisive. I understand, obviously, that you know it doesn't doesn't make any more electricity appear on the on the grid. Um, all of that determination, all of that planning. Um, but is it? Do you think qualitatively there was a new um, there was a new feel to it, or was it simply these guys are simply going through the motions? I think there's definitely sense a new sense of urgency uh and i think as i say that this is driven uh, politically and by the pressure that is coming um on uh politicians um and uh yeah through through a number well, through the daily lived experience of citizens uh, through the price increase that was announced a week ago uh and and, and, and I think this is, and of course now there's been this upswell of legal activity um, against president, against the 
ministers, against uh, ESCOM, uh, from a number of quarters, including the DA uh, and various civil uh, society groupings. And I, I think even from within the party, uh, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with what is going on. And um, and this is this is manifesting itself in an increased sense of urgency. In reality, I'm not sure that there really is a lot new coming out, um, other than uh, you know a sense of urgency. Uh, but um, I think there has been some progress made. But if you want to ask me frankly, I am somewhat disappointed by the amount of progress that has been made in the six months since the president announced his emergency plan. There has okay. been a little bit of progress, but I think it's not enough in view of the circumstance, and it seems to only been uh, developing some serious urgency traction uh, most recently in the last uh, few weeks. Yes. Yeah. Chris, uh, as you say, President Ramaphosa publishes his 10-point energy plan last um, July. He soon after that creates NECOM. Since then, things become progressively worse. Has NECOM done its job? Can it do it? Is there a job to be done? Is it a necessary thing? I think it is necessary to have uh, emergency action to deal with this. But if I have some criticism, if I may, uh, uh, you know, about the plan itself, and the way it's being implemented, you may. is that our president is known for his highly consultative approach. And um, before he released that plan, he consulted deeply, very deeply, with all different groups of stakeholders, business, yeah. labor, communities, uh, biz, uh, yeah, the Energy Council, the Minerals Council, and any number of civil society groupings and even political parties. Uh, it was long on consultation. Uh, in my view, maybe too long. Uh, nevertheless, that's his style. And um, the plan that was produced, in my view, and different people may think differently, but my view is that it tried to incorporate into it all the input that he received from all the different stakeholders, and therefore, it's too long and too complex uh, trying to appease every different idea and make sure that it's incorporated somewhere in the plan. And um, I would take a much more focused approach and uh, try and crystallize it into a much fewer number of issues that would have high impact in the short term. Uh, and um, because a lot of the issues in that plan or medium and long-term issues. I mean, long-term issues as in, you know, the restructuring of the electricity supply industry and the ESCOM. Of course, these things are necessary, uh, yeah. but they are long-term and not uh, quick, high-impact issues. Uh, the same thing applies to, for example, a whole lot of issues that I think uh, go without being said. Any good forward-looking and uh, capable utility should be doing a number of things like maintenance and working on its energy availability factor and uh, making sure it's uh, work, you know doing uh, energy efficiency and demand side management. All of those things are important, but I think 
they are what I'd consider to be what normal utilities should be doing and are doing. I would focus on those additional things that utilities are not necessarily doing uh, that would have high impact and really focus on a few issues that you know you can deliver quickly. And, and that delivers the kind of results that people want to see. Um, but if you get distracted and have to set up like eight or nine working streams and yeah. uh, have a committee on each one of them, it it drags the talk out uh, much longer than I should than I think it should take. And um, and so only now do I think we are starting to see the beginnings of the action plan. But getting this plan over the line. <laughs> or getting specific actions by the different work streams over the line is proving very difficult uh, because there are some ministries, uh, and remember, each of these work streams is really uh, driven by political ministry. Yeah. And, 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 and getting it over the line in, in this environment is really difficult uh, in- and, and slowing things down. Chris, there are, there are two plans we talk about, if I'm, if I'm right. One is the NECOM plan, which is the general energy plan, and the other one is the ESCOM plan, which is an electricity plan, right? A, a generation, they're going to fix generation, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, and it's important to separate the two because, you know, it's easy to throw blame around for somebody not doing their job or doing their job properly. But, I mean, when it comes to the actual generation of, of electricity, that's an ESCOM um responsibility and, and um, um, you know, things that get in the way of that. And maybe, you know, if you if you need diesel to do that and you're not allowed to buy diesel or you have to buy diesel in a certain way, maybe that you can hold somebody else to account. Uh, that's right. Look, uh, what was talked about yesterday in the media briefing at the Eskom, uh, quite a lot of talk was spent on the uh, so-called Generation Recovery Plan. This yeah. is the Eskim Fleet's Recovery Plan. Yeah. It's operating at a very low availability factor. It needs to be increased significantly. And there's maintenance issues and there's finance issues, planning issues, there's spares issues, skills issues all come into that. Uh, but this is just one part of the President's Plan. Uh, uh, the President's Plan goes much further than just Eskom's generation fleet. In fact, yes, Eskom's generation fleet is not necessarily going to deliver the quickest wins. Um, although some people think it can, they say they think you can just snap your finger and improve the energy availability factor from fifty-eight percent to sixty to sixty-five to seventy to seventy-five percent, and that can all be done. But Let it's not. Uh, it takes time. Yeah. But there are many other issues dealt with by other work streams that are a part of the president's yeah. plan. I wanted I wanted to stick with the with the ESCOM and its energy availability um, factor because I've just I've just seen it and it's a horrific um, graph. Uh, it 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 falls every year. This has got nothing to do with underrated rate. This is just what has happened over the years. It falls from the almost from the year Jacob Zuma became president. Um, from I think a high of eighty five point three two percent to just over fifty eight percent now. So that's from two thousand eight to now. Every single year, it's fallen. Um, how do you even begin to make that go back in the other direction? 
Because that's the point. And remember what an energy availability factor is. And I've been banging away on this issue for some time now, trying to get the message across. The energy availability factor is the average performance of, of the 80 or so generators in the Ethereum yeah. fleet. And when you have an average of 80 generators that is on a declining trend yeah. in the last 10 years or so, um, and at the same time, you know that it is impossible to fix all these generators at once because you don't have the, the manpower, you don't have the money, and in fact, you don't have the luxury of being able to switch them all off and fix them. So you have to fix them sort of in sequence uh, in a very planned way over several years. And in that environment, you've got to understand that the energy availability factor trend graph cannot do a so-called step change, and it cannot have a sudden change in direction. It is what is known mathematically as a continuum. So you cannot have a step change in the, in the EAF, nor can you have a step change in the rate of change of EAF. Yeah. It is a continuous curve. So before you can suddenly start going up, you first, when you're going down on a trend, you have to slowly curve around and bottom out and reach a sort of bottom and then start trending upwards again. That is what a continuum is. You can't do any sudden step changes yeah. or changes in direction. And that means it's going to take time. And it's obvious. It's absolutely obvious when you know that you can't maintain all the units simultaneously. Therefore, you can't change the direction simultaneously. And because it's an average of 80 units that you can't maintain simultaneously, it is the slow continuum. And that's why I say again and again that people like Ted Blanc, who go on radio and say that they personally can fix the problem in three to six months. And then you have the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy going on saying, I can fix the problem in 12 to 18 months. And then you have uh, Enoch Godengwana going on and saying, I can fix it in 18 months to two years. You know, they're they, they just not understanding <laughs> what an energy availability factor of 80 generators comprises. Let me ask you this then. So what we have now on Sunday was the chairman of ESCOM and Paul McQuiner, and he's been chairman of ESCOM before. He's actually was managing director over CEO for a while, and I've stood in. Um, mm -hmm. Him promising that the journey of the turnaround, he says, will be driven by stretch EAF targets um, towards 60% of EAF by the 31st of March 2023. That's like two months away. From that, That's from 60 from 58 or so where it is now. Um, sixty-five percent in a year's time, and seventy percent by March twenty twenty-five. That's two years away. Is he on the same planet as you are? I would say that hell of a stretch, and uh, I really do not think it is possible. But I will be very, very impressed and surprised if it is. If it is done, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think. I mean, he did say that we're going to have stage two to stage three load shedding for the next two years. Um, what he, he, he was suggesting, he was suggesting that we should actually perhaps work towards having stage two to stage three load shedding continuously for two years, yeah. which the CEO promptly contradicted, rather embarrassingly, uh, that uh, no, that this uh, they have looked at that 
already and they have already decided that that's not possible. Yeah. Uh, and and but, but the bottom line is, Mpamukwana said that we're going to have this for the next two years. <laughs> so I don't see a sudden recovery. You know, you know, at the end of two years, suddenly the load shedding disappears. No, um, I, I think the other thing that I must add at this point, I think for a chairperson of Eskom or even the CEO to start talking about what they what should happen and what they're going to make happen with the energy with the level of load shedding for the next two years in other words to say that we're thinking that we should have stage two load shedding for the next two years or stage three load shedding for the next year is is really a dangerous proposition because you said the whole purpose the whole purpose of, of load shedding is that it's taken out of the hands of the CEO and the chairman and politicians, and it's placed in the direct and only control of the ESKIM uh, uh, system operator, it's Simapan at national control. And the goal of this is to manage supply and demand to ensure that there's a balance at all times and to prevent load shedding. So for a chairman to come on and suggest that there's going to be uh, that they are considering that they should be only stage two to stage three load shedding for the in other words it's taking that control that autonomous control out of the hands of the system operator and putting it into the hands of a chairman of Eskom who's got not the right technical knowledge not the right information to make a decision which has to be made hour by hour day by day on how much load shedding is needed to yeah. manage supply and demand and to avoid a national blackout. It's and right, definitely right as, we, as we approach separating the transmission business from ESCOM in the first place, I presume, as well. Exactly. Um, Look, it is a well-established thing that, that the load shedding is under the control of the system operator and, and no politician, no CEO should interfere. And no. in the past, Brian Malefi has phoned up the national control and tried to tell them what load shedding stage they should do over the certain period for one reason or another. And the system operator rightly told Brian Malefi to get lost. That that, that that is not how it works. Yeah. Chris, sorry, we're gonna come I'm gonna come back to the quick wins. I know that you've but I just want to just plod through some of the other um non escom bits of so this is now back to NECOM. Um uh um, Ramaphosa, in in a note after the NECOM meeting, says that a new ministerial determination has been published for 14,771 megawatts of new generation, new generation um, renewables, wind, solar, and battery storage. Where does that where does that come from? How how is that going to be overseen? Is it in the current uh, integrated? Um, resources plan. Yes, it is. Uh, and um, I sometimes worry Minister Mantash seems to think that he's done his job when he's issued the inquiry. But that's not where it ends. That's where it starts. Hmm. Uh, those projects have to reach financial closure. That takes some time. And some of these projects have not achieved for in fact many of no. them have not achieved no. financial yeah. closure no, nor have they even started construction they haven't even started construction and construction 
is a two to three year uh, process in itself. And sometimes the, the I mean, the, 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 the reaching financial close can take a year or more. Yeah. And we've seen that with, with the risk mitigation IPP program. So yeah. uh, just to say, you know, to claim as a success that we've issued inquiries for the risk mitigation IPP program, bid window one, uh, bid window five, bid window six, and the battery storage system, which still hasn't been introduced, yeah. uh, released yeah. anyway, the inquiry. But yeah. it's not good enough. It's not good enough just to issue inquiries because that's uh, actually what's happening at the moment. We've got to reach financial close and then we've got to construct them and we've got to deliver the power to the grid. So what we have is bid window five now has 19 of the 25 uh, preferred bidders have now um, um, have now begun talks with their banks, if I'm not mistaken, right. uh, in they order to try to get the financial but not yeah. financial terms. That's right. The vast yeah. majority. So it's and it's for far less than um, was originally hoped. And and um, bid window number six is a complete disaster. Um, it was able to able to reach legal close for about eight hundred and sixty megawatts um, instead of uh, what was going to be five thousand two hundred when the president uh, spoke last July. Um, uh, partly that's because of um, um, there being no, not enough capacity on the grid to take the wind projects that were in bid window six. And I wondered, you know, because Greta Mantasha has been very vocal over the weekend about defending himself from accusations that he is also partly to blame uh, for the load shedding that we have. And I just wonder what what is, you know, to be fair to him or, or just to, you know, to get the story straight. What What is his role as energy minister? To what extent is he part of the problem that you know that we have generating electricity? Yeah. So in, in the way the procurement, the public procurement processes work, first there's an integrated resource plan for electricity. Uh, that is a function of his department, the DMRE. Uh, that was very slow in coming. Um, once it came. The minister has got to make what is called ministerial determinations uh, for construction of certain generation capacity in line with that IRP, and that was very slow off the you know off the ground. Mm. Uh, but those determinations were eventually made. Then it's got to go to NERSA, the regulator, who's got to concur with the ministerial determination. In other words, it's a joint decision. Uh, NERSA has also got to look at that and agree with the uh, minister before it can go ahead. And uh, in those in, in processes, to, before they can reach concurrence, there have to be public participation processes, which delay matters still further. And remember that NERSA falls under DMRE. Um, and, and, and in fact, only then does it go to the IPP office, which is another agency of the DMRE. And the IPP office then prepares documents and issues of public Request for proposals at a bidding process. Uh, so uh, that was also slow off the mark. Um, and uh, finally, bids are received, and then they've got to award what they call preferred bidders. Uh, it's the minister's role. And um, that was done, I think, fairly, uh, you know, reasonably on time. And then after the preferred bidders are announced, then uh, they've got to reach legal close and financial close before. Now, this is a very long and drawn-out bureaucratic process. Uh, 
the majority of which falls into the ambit of the DMRE. And in fact, I think to answer your question, you know, what is the minister responsible for? One looks at his performance contract with the president. And funnily enough, this so-called secret document is available on the government website for download. And you can download his performance agreement with the president, signed on each page by the minister and by the president, and you can see exactly what he's responsible for. <laughs> for example, some of the things that he's responsible for is, is making sure that the energy availability factor isn't at the right level. So he's <laughs> directly linked you know, to the energy availability factor and making sure that there's sufficient generation capacity to meet demand, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if you're interested, I can send you a copy of his book. I would love you to. Save me the trouble. Uh, I, I don't worry. I've already put it on Twitter and the public domain several times. Uh, I love but, it. But you know, people don't often read things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he is responsible uh, for new generation capacity uh, through the public procurement processes. And he's also responsible for the energy availability factor being at the right level. Is he responsible when he when his agencies like like the IPP office are deciding, you know, which wind projects to choose from and all this kind of thing? Does he is is it reasonable to expect him and his office and his department to know what the capacity of ESCOM of the national grid is? Um, I, I don't suppose so. Um, I, 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 I don't suppose. I mean, he is certainly not involved in choosing the successful bidders. What I'm asking, what I'm asking is, yeah. is does the does the DMRE know what the national grid is capable of? I think it does know, uh, because Eskom have a website uh, where they make it absolutely clear what availability. Uh, you know what can be connected at each and every substation throughout South Africa, but certainly the IPP office does and should know exactly uh, where the available generation capacity, uh, where the available connection capacity is, at which substations one connected, which provinces one can connect. All of that uh, is information that is at the disposal of uh, the IPP office. And one of my big, my big criticisms of the IPP office. Yeah. is the way they issue their tenders and the way they adjudicate um, you know, the successful bidders is based on the least... Well, you first have to meet certain criteria like BEE and ESG yeah. and um, all the various social and socioeconomic yeah. criteria. And then from those that do meet those conditions, the, the, the bidders with the lowest cost at the point of generation are winning the bids. Now, what this forces people, what this the economic signal that is put out to the bidders is that they should choose the, the locations geographically that will give them the best radiation or the best wind to give them the, the least cost power generated at the point of generation. The point of generation or the point of connection to the grid. Yeah. Now that forces that, that means that everybody is chasing certain preferred geographic areas in South Africa, causing grid congestion in certain geographic areas and neglecting the available connection capacity in other geographic areas. And that's uh, this lesson was learned some time ago. 
Mm. Uh, for example, when you first started the, the bidding process in 2012, there were no, uh, there was no congestion because there were no uh, projects uh, being connected to the grid yet. So it was fine. People would be chasing certain areas, geographic areas. But as we went through bid one, two, three, and four, now all of a sudden there's a lot of existing, uh, you know, plants and connecting in certain geographic areas, and the, the connection capability at those areas has become very limited. But still, they haven't adjusted the um, the bidding process to encourage people not to chase the least cost at the point of generation, but rather yeah. to, ch to chase the least cost at the point of consumption, yeah. where the electricity is being consumed. Because electricity is being consumed in Johannesburg, in Boxburg, in Ekurlene, in Twani, in the industrial areas of Gauteng. And it would make a lot of sense to build these uh, plants in this area or or in other areas where the sun also shines and the wind also blows, like Limpopo, like Northwest, like Mpumalanga, like the Free State, like KZN, they are all good locations, but not as good as the Northern Cape, for example, for solar. So, uh, and the point is, if you build in the Northern Cape, what you win in extra solar irradiation, you lose in transmission losses in getting the energy from the point of generation to the point of consumption. And it would be much make a lot more sense to actually build these plants where there is connections available, where the sun also shines and the wind also blows, and close to the load where you don't have transmission losses. But the because economic the, signals are wrong. The economic yeah. signals of the IPP office are not uh, the are not sending out the right signals to bidders. So, so Chris, the the IPP office or DMRE. Then, um, as far as it concerns, um, uh, picks the preferred bidders for um, bid window six. It can only choose a few um, uh, uh, solar solar projects because the wind projects are all in the Western Cape or Eastern Cape, and there's no room on the grid. Did it not know that there was no wind on the grid when it gave them when it made them preferred bidders or? Why would it do something? Why would it allow, and and why would it allow something when encourage something to go ahead, which was impossible? It knew at the time when they were choosing preferred bidders, well, they couldn't choose enough of them. So at that point, they knew that there was a problem. At the time when they issued the inquiry, which was several months earlier, uh, they thought there was sufficient uh, connect. A capacity available for connection because the Eskom website indicated such. However, in that interim period between issuing the inquiries and getting down to select preferred bidders, the private PPA or private procurement processes uh, of developers uh, are much more nimble and they foresaw these grid constraints coming and they for their private projects with mining companies and um, large industry they went ahead and effectively booked these slots and the way you book a slot is by paying a budget quotation fee to ESCOM 
and giving ESCOM a letter uh, showing them that your project is real. And it's a first-come, first-serve system. Uh, ESCOM will allocate a connection point, first-come, first-serve, to those people who have paid their, their budget quotation and have got a real project in front of ESCOM to show. And so in that interim period, a whole lot of available slots were, were taken up by uh, private sector projects who paid their, 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 their budget quotation and showed that they had a real project and booked that slot. And then, because the public process is so slow and bureaucratic and cumbersome, by the time those projects sort of were adjudicated, suddenly it was realized, oh, those slots are no longer available. Um, and of course, there's a lot of hard feelings uh, by the bidders for the public process, you know, who went to a lot of trouble and efforts, uh, you know, putting their bids together. It costs a lot of money and, and getting bid bonds and goodness knows what, only to find that there's no connections available. But my view is that the problem is the way the bid economic signals uh, are put out. It would be better, I think, to have a inquiry process or bidding process in each province separately because there is grid connectivity available in certain parts of South Africa. Uh, it's just that everybody is chasing the best opportunity and then they yeah. find out that it's not the best yeah. opportunity after all because there are delays. Can I, the other question I wanted to ask you about renewable energy, as I understand it, was that, you know, um, people talk about these projects, uh, um, for instance, Bitwinder 6 is now 860 megawatts. Is that a megawatt that we've come, is that a, are all megawatts the same or is a solar megawatt less of a megawatt than than a coal megawatt at, at uh, you know, Kusila Power Station? We, the instantaneous megawatts of both are the same. But uh, the uh, a wind plant cannot deliver the instantaneous megawatts, the peak megawatts on a continuous basis. Uh, because it's variable and uh, one really needs to look not at the peak but at the average megawatts that it can deliver over a period of time and in that respect the average megawatts delivered that, that a plant can deliver over a period of time is not necessarily the same for all technologies yeah. uh, so some technologies are like like solar even on perfect solar days because of the night time you can only get a certain maximum average of maybe uh, 30% out of out of a solar PV block, 30% uh, of its main plate. Mm. Right. So you would want you would in order to replace 100 megawatts of of baseload power that we now have in ESCOM's power stations, you're going to need 300 megawatts of. Uh, no, 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 that's not correct. That not? That's not correct. Okay. No, that's not correct either, uh, because even if you had three times the amount of megawatts yeah. all at the same time you got to then end up at night time yeah. with nothing and with a daytime peak you're going to have three times higher what you need to do is to mix and blend different technologies to achieve the stated goal the stated goal is to achieve a certain output profile over a 24-hour period with a certain degree of reliability so you want to yeah. be able to say with a 99% assurance that I can deliver 
uh, a certain profile that it matches the demand profile uh, over a certain time period with a certain degree of of, of reliability. And uh, when one looks at it like that, um, you see, we have a significant legacy plant of coal plant and of nuclear plant. And that's very useful to have a legacy coal and nuclear and hydro. Uh, now you come along with uh, solar and you come along with wind. Now we know that wind actually complements solar quite nicely because the sun shines mainly in the daytime, well, only in the daytime, uh, and, and the wind uh, blows, uh, picks up in the evenings. Uh, so the two complement themselves quite nicely. But you still need what we call variable generation to fill the gaps in the variability. Now, this variable generation doesn't have to produce a lot of kilowatt hours of energy, but it needs to have a lot of capacity so that if on the rare event where there is no sun and no wind, you've got sufficient capacity to deliver for that short period, which might only occur for a couple of days a year, uh, you need a certain amount of capacity to be able to fill that gap. So you need a blend of a number of different technologies in order to deliver what we call reliable, dispatchable power. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's absolutely clear that uh, theoretically and uh, practically, a blend of wind and solar PV and flexible generation in the form of battery energy storage, pumped water storage, hydro or gas to power, can deliver reliable 24-hour electricity to meet whatever load profile you want. And it can do that at least cost. And that's why the Integrated Resource Plan for Electricity shows you know, that the least cost option for new generation capacity is a blend of wind and solar PV and gas to power and battery storage and hydro. <laughs> and that's yeah. why there's no coal needed. We don't need coal. Well, they did slot in uh, 1,500 megawatts of coal. That will never happen. Uh, it's that was put in just as a show, a bit of show for the coal industry to make them think that they're getting something when they're not really, because that coal will never be delivered because you can't finance it. Uh, so they put it in the IRP, even though knowing that it'll never actually happen. Yeah, one of the one of the one of the um, results of um, the private sector getting in before the public um, building process in terms of in terms of like. Uh, um, grid connectivity is that um, there are now more than 100 projects with around 9,000 megawatts of capacity coming in in the various stages, I presume. I don't know whether anyone's laid a brick or dug a foundation yet, but but um, ESCOM seems to believe that it can create a market uh, out of these projects where it can say to whoever, be it goldfields or whichever company happens to have um, uh, be feeding energy into the grid, um, that it can buy what that company doesn't need and it's going to create a new market. It's going to buy forward. That's quite a, that's quite a, a decent uh, proposition, isn't it? It's, it is, uh, and it uh, should be, uh, and it's been talked about since 1998. Uh, in the 1998 government-wide paper on energy policy, uh, written and prepared by a group of uh, very forward-looking young thinkers at the time, which included Anton Eberhard, professor now, as well as uh, Dr. Frobier Stein and, and others. Uh, you know, part of the 1998 paper, which is the official government of South Africa since 1998, includes for the creation of an electricity market, 
Uh, and now it's being talked about again, and it's as relevant now as it was then, uh, but it's never been implemented. And I have one big fear, and that is that at the moment, the forward-looking and uh, more visionary management that currently exists at Eskom is on the verge of being replaced with a new board, a new, C a, a new chairman, a new CEO, a new COO, a new head of generation. The just transition leader, uh, uh, Mandy Ramboris, has, has left Eskom, and uh, it's can, people are talking about uh, putting Eskom under the DMRE, under, uh, you know, the, 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 this... We're under Gwedi Mantasha, effectively. Yeah. My worry is that a lot of this forward-thinking, market-orientated, customer-focused thinking of ESCO, which includes an electricity market, is going to take a step backwards as it reverts to the more traditional ideological position of a centrally controlled, uh, a centrally planned, not market oriented, not customer focused, but back to the vertically integrated uh, monopoly approach that we've had for all these years. Uh, what so are you, what I, I, I worry that there might be the end of the liberalization of the electricity sector, the the the, the end of the, the period of looking towards a market, and it goes in waves. I mean, yeah. I believe that if it goes back to the DMRE, the wave will revert back to the centrist model away from uh, the distributed and market-focused model. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned at, when we began talking, and I'm sorry, I've been, I've been working around you, but you, and I've heard you speak about them before, there are quicker wins that we can, that we can bring to bear um, in order to make, in order one, to lighten load shedding, um, uh, not in 18 months or six months, but really, really much faster than that. Talk to me a little bit about those. Yeah, look, uh, this gets to the idea that these, that government and big business and ESCOM think big. They think big projects, 100 megawatts plus. In fact, for them, 100 megawatts is quite small. <laughs> and these projects um, uh, take time and are much more complex to put together, especially through a public procurement process. Even through a private procurement process with between uh, you know, a generator and an off-taker, you have to use the ESCOM grid as your transport mechanism, so you have to wheel power through the grid, and that introduces a third party to the contract, the generator, the off-taker, and the company that provides the network. So it's, it's complex, it takes time, it's, uh, et cetera. But there's a whole other area which these big business, big government, big ESCOM, uh, just seem to, in my view, neglect. And that is the domestic customer, uh, the commercial customer, and the agricultural customer, the farmer. And in this sector, there are literally hundreds of thousands of customers who could supplement their electricity needs through a solar PV system and battery energy storage system and it's already happening. And it's happening quickly, even by default. But it could be happening on a massive scale, on a scale that in aggregation is bigger than the big projects of ESCOM and uh, energy intensive users 
and um, uh, and 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 you know the government procured projects. So I think it's been badly neglected this area in countries around the world. And the example commonly referred to is Vietnam, where they installed eight to nine thousand megawatts of solar PV and battery storage in the domestic commercial agricultural sector alone in one year. Now that. Uh, can be started to be delivered. Well, it's even happening now as we speak. It, it's it's happening. This is like the, what we call the quiet revolution. It's happening below the radar uh, simply because it's starting to make economic sense, not just from a savings of electricity point of view, but also from a reliability of supply or a business continuity, small business, homes, uh, shops, uh, uh, shopping centers, buildings, parking lots, uh, farms, etc., etc., are just doing this. Sometimes even not following the rules and regulations. It's, they're just doing it because it, it makes sense for them. And I think that this could be accelerated dramatically, as it has been done in Vietnam, uh, and, and, and make a massive difference in the very short term at no cost to government, and at no cost to the fiscus, at no cost to the taxpayer, but at the cost of the customer concerned. And they do it, not, of course, there's a cost, but there is a benefit that outweighs the cost. Uh, so the, 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 the value. And the benefit, of the benefit is lightening the loss. Yeah, it's, and you see, it's not only helping that particular customer, it's helping ESCOM, it's helping the whole country, because the more people put in self generation, and battery storage, the less they will need to buy from the grid. And it reduces the burden on the grid and it will therefore reduce load shedding for everybody. So some people say, oh, but the poor can't do this. Well, the poor are going to benefit because there'll be reduced load shedding for the poor, for the for, for industry, for everybody will, will experience reduced load shedding. Eskom will not lose out. Because they're already not supplying 6,000 megawatts of, of power, you know, for extended periods of the day. So it's not like they're going to be losing business. They already have lost that business. They're not supplying this electricity uh, right through the working day, right today, as we speak. Uh, they're not delivering electricity to good parts of the country. And, um, and, and so by supplementing, by customers supplementing their needs, you know, with solar PV and battery storage, which will take them all through the day and through a good part of the night until they go to bed. <laughs> you know, the, that's what you'll reduce the demand during those periods, which are the critical periods for the economy. And for obviously, what you would have to do is somehow incentivize that sort of behaviour exactly. if you if you if you could. Um, that is, those incentives needn't cost anything. They might just slow down some of your tax revenues if it's a tax break. Um, do you have any idea, Chris, what the current installed, privately owned um, electricity generating capacity in this country is now? What I do know is what I hear from the solar PV industry, the people who import solar PV panels, and the vast majority, vast majority of the solar PV panel are imported. So I'm told uh, that uh, about 800 to 1,000 megawatts, it's about 0.8 to 1 gigawatts of solar PV panels are imported into South Africa every year, last year, last year. And it's going up. 
as and and that is without even trying. That is just what's happening quietly in the background without people yeah. knowing it. So what you said, and I agree with, is that not only does it have to be allowed, it needs to be allowed. At the moment, there are a lot of restrictions, and I can tell you about them. But so not only does it have to be allowed, it has to be encouraged by actually telling people, you're not bad guys by doing this, you're the good guys. We encourage you to do it. Please do it. Uh, you're welcome to do it. You're allowed to do it. And then lastly, to incentivize it through either what is known as a feed-in tariff or secondly, through tax breaks, rebates. There are different yeah. innovative uh, just some, that just some, Just some creative thinking which we very badly need. Chris, Yellen, thank you so much for talking to me today and I'm sure people have enjoyed listening to you too. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back next week with another very interesting guest. Thank you for joining me. Bye-bye.